If you've got a Bible, let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. And we are on the third Sunday of Easter, which may sound weird to some of you, but it's the idea that Easter is a season. Uh, it's not just a single Sunday, but it's actually in the liturgical calendar. It's, uh, it's the season that starts on Easter and goes for 50 days up until Pentecost, which means 50. And so there's uh, several Sundays or weeks of Easter. And so during this time, as we've kind of gone through Lent and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're uh, taking this season to talk about the spirituality of everyday life. And I want to share a quote with you from N.T. Wright that helps give us us a little bit of context for why, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, then that means that every day and every part of life actually matters, takes on new meaning, bigger than we ever could have imagined. So it's a long quote. I've got it for you on the screen. Let's read it together, or let me read it for you. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Just beautiful vision saying that if God truly has entered into our world, into our time and our space as a human and lived among us and died for us and risen from the dead, that's God's way of saying, I haven't given up on this creation project. That I'm still passionately engaged in this world. That this world matters. That everything matters. That the focus of Christianity isn't swooping Christians up to a place called heaven to leave this God-forsaken place behind, but it's that God is promised to bring heaven to earth, to make things right, to make things new again. And what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead, that's the first fruits or a foretaste of what God's going to do for everything, that this world matters to God. And so we're taking these six weeks and talking about the spirituality of everyday life. If Jesus really is risen, then that's good news for the whole world and good news for our entire life. And therefore, everything matters. So last week, Ken talked about time. In, in coming weeks, we're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about friendship. Uh, just kind of the basic things that make up everyday life. And if we were to consider the reality of the resurrection, then it would change the way uh, we see everything. And so this morning, we get to talk about money, which is always fun. But if we're talking about the things that make up everyday life, then we have to talk about money, don't we? We spend an incredible amount of time dealing with money, don't we? It takes up so much space in our lives. Many of us spend... 40 or 50 or more hours a week at work so we can what? so we can make money 
We spend time on a regular basis going over our finances and trying to figure out what to do with our money. Uh, Some of us spend significant time and energy worrying about money and laying awake wondering how we're going to pay the bills or provide for our family or do what we need to do. We spend a lot of time worrying about not having enough money. Others, I know people that actually spend time and energy worrying about having too much money and they're not sure what to do with all the money they've got. I'm sure you'd like to meet those people, wouldn't you? You've got some ideas for them. Some people hire financial advisors to help them make decisions on how should I save, how should I invest, how should I spend, how should I think through things like money. We're constantly wondering and worrying and working towards this end of figuring out what to do with money or with our perceived lack thereof. And I would argue that it's not just kind of the wealthy and advantaged people that have financial advisors. We all do. All of us have financial advisors in our life, meaning we have people or cultures or communities that set our ideas and our worldview and our perspective of how we think about and how we use our money. Your friends serve as financial advisors. The communities that you're part of serve as financial advisors. The media that you consume, the shows that you watch, the news that you read, the books and the podcasts and whatever else, in a world that we can't avoid conversation about money, there's all kinds of advice, all kinds of perspective, all kinds of worldview uh, to be consumed. And so for all of us, actually, I would argue that our first financial advisor was our family of origin. The family that you grew up in was the first context in which you were taught how to think about money, how to see your money, how to use your money. And so in your original family, questions were addressed or answered along the lines of, is money something you should worry about, right? Or how much money should you keep for yourself versus how much you should give away? Um, Should you choose a career based on where you're going to make the most money, or are there other ways of choosing what to do with your life? In our families, we learned things like how should we treat and view people who have more money than us, and how should we view and treat those who have less? Um, Did you get an allowance? Did you get paid to do chores around the house, or was it just kind of expected because you're part of the family. Did you learn to tip well at restaurants or to leave no tip? Should you buy the nicest things you can so that they'll last the longest or should you buy the cheapest things you can and replace them regularly? Or questions like, is money even something that we should talk about at all? Or is it something that's private? Is it rude to bring it up? And so in your family of origin, maybe you saw something modeled that shaped you in such a way that you said, I want to do money like my parents. I want to follow their lead and be as much like them as possible. Or maybe it was the exact opposite and you go, I know what I don't want to do. I know how I don't want to manage and think about my money based on the example I have. And so for all of us who are parents, it's interesting to think about this too, that we serve as our kids' financial advisors 
from the earliest days of their lives. And whether we're intentional and explicit with what we think and believe about money, they're observing and they're starting to experience uh, something about the reality of living in a world where money is unavoidable. Incredible responsibility that we have. And so maybe it's being done intentionally or maybe they're just picking it up. But either way, our kids are looking to us as their financial advisors. So I grew up in a family where my dad was a pastor and then became a missionary. And so our entire livelihood was utterly dependent upon the generosity, the gifts, and the tithes and the donations of others. Okay, first as a pastor that was supported by the church, and then later as a missionary who had to raise support in order to carry out the work God had him doing. So we, in our home, heard about money a lot. But it was never really talked about as something to be hoarded. Um, It was talked about as something to be leveraged for the sake of God's kingdom. And so my dad would frequently talk to people about money as a missionary raising support and invite them to partner with what God was doing through the work that they were doing on the mission field. And so it was like maybe you want to fund an orphanage or maybe you want to scholarship a student or maybe you want to help start a new church or something like that. And so money was constantly being talked about in our home as a means of partnering with what God was up to in the world. And so that was my first exposure to money. I had a grandpa, my mom's dad, who in retirement caught this vision for uh, trying to increase income for the sake of increasing giving. And so what my grandpa did was got a bunch of his old retired friends together. They pooled some money together, started a nonprofit, and would buy old rundown houses throughout Central California. And then all these old grandpas would spend their days fixing up these houses to flip them and to sell them. And 100% of the money that they made in selling the houses was given away to missions. And so my grandpa, in his retirement, lived an incredibly simple life. He wasn't doing a lot of golfing or exotic vacations or anything like that. But between his retirement and the time he died, he gave away over $2 million towards church plants and missions here in the, in the States and around the world. And so I used to go in the summers as a middle school and high school kid and spend a few weeks helping my grandpa fix up these houses, working on houses, learning how to work on houses, but then hearing the stories about what good this money was going to do and how God was going to use it to advance his kingdom. Okay, and so those were some of my early and formative experiences around money. And in some ways, they're really beautiful, and I'm really grateful, but I also missed out on some of the other experiences that you may have had. And so we're all coming at this from different places, all trying to figure out what do we do with our money, how do we think about our money, um, and what does the spirituality of everyday life have to do with this thing that's so central to every part of our lives. And so this morning, I want to look at some of Jesus' teachings on money. And Jesus talked about money all the time. In fact, about 20% of his teachings had to do with money. Why did he talk about it so much? Well, several reasons, but one is it's such a huge part of life in pretty much every culture. And Jesus doesn't come just to kind of revolutionize our spirituality or our religion, but he actually comes to revolutionize our entire life. 
And he knows that without dealing with this area called money, that, uh, that he's never going to get the whole person. And so in Luke 12, in the verses that Alana read for us, there's this incredible, <laughs> incredibly interesting story. Jesus is teaching the crowd, and somebody interrupts him in verse 13 and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Right? I picture like some drunk dude that's like got this family feud going and he interrupts this teacher and going, give my, tell my brother to give me more money, right? And Jesus kind of shuts him down and goes, man, I'm not really here to do that. I'm not really here to, to tell you guys how to divide up the inheritance, the inheritance. But he says, but I do have something to say to you. I do have something to say to you. And in verse 15, he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Okay, as we study this passage this morning, the kind of teaching that Jesus is doing is warning. It's a warning kind of message. And so this morning, I'm going to be speaking to you from a place of warning. Now, I don't mean threatening. But I mean the same way as, like how as a dad, I warn my kids, you got to look both ways before you go into the street. You can't just bomb down the driveway on your bike out into the road. You got to look, watch out for cars. Be careful. Do you see that's the language Jesus is using? Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And so apparently for Jesus, when it comes to us and money, this is one of the first and most important things he would say to his followers. I want to warn you guys about this thing called greed. You got to watch out for it and you got to be careful. It's almost like he describes it as a sickness that you could catch if you're not paying attention. That it's really easy to become vulnerable to this thing, and we need to be careful. We need to pay attention. And the truth is that many of us may already be infected, and we don't even know it. Okay? And so the fact that Jesus talks about greed in a warning way assumes that it's possible for this thing to sneak up on you. It's possible that this thing is way closer to you than you think. That it's possible to be greedy without really knowing it at all. And so the assumption is that greed is something that in its very nature, that when you have it, you don't know it. In fact, I think that's actually one of the symptoms of greed, that you don't think you have any. Greed in its very nature is hidden. It's an interesting way to talk about something that we would all recognize as sin. He doesn't talk about other sins this way. He doesn't say, watch out for adultery. Why? Because you never commit adultery without knowing it. You're never like, oh, you're not my wife. Sorry, right? It's not the kind of sin you commit unknowingly. And he seems to be saying greed is different. That you can fall into it, you can be infected by it without knowing it at all. And so here's what's crazy is none of us think that we're greedy. In fact, as a pastor now for 18 years, 
Very, very rarely does somebody ever come into my office and say, I'm really struggling with greed. I've heard about every other sin in the book. But none of us feels like this is talking about us. And I'll be honest too, this morning I'm not standing up here going, I see you guys as a really greedy congregation. Or I think of myself as somebody who struggles with greed. We're blind to it. We think that we're immune from it. And the reason is because we can always point to somebody else who's much greedier than we are, right? And so Jesus says, watch out. Be suspicious of yourself. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust appearances. Ask a ton of questions of your own heart and your habits. And so when it comes to your finances, watch out. This is the first thing Jesus is teaching us. Pay attention. What are you thinking about when you're buying something? Are you willing to ask yourself hard questions? Do I really need this? Can I actually afford this? Why do I really want this? What am I hoping this thing is going to give me or add to my life? What could I do with the money if I didn't buy this? Jesus seems to be encouraging an introspective self-awareness when it comes to how we see and use our money. Watch out. Be careful. Be suspicious. And if we choose not to ask ourselves hard questions, then we're choosing to be blinded to our own greed. And so we need to not only be suspicious of how we spend our money, but also how, how we make our money. Do you work for a company that causes harm to the poor? Are there neighborhoods or groups of people that are being negatively affected by what your company does? Is there part of your job that causes you to violate your conscience? Do you have to lie in order to make money? You start to understand how deep this goes and how cautious Jesus wants us to be. Be careful. Be on your guard. Watch out. Because greed can sneak into your life and you're totally unaware. So what is greed? Well, basically, it's just when money becomes overly important to you. It's when this thing called money that's really amoral, right? It's not good or bad. It just is when it becomes something that you look to for ultimate purposes. When money is elevated to the place of God in your life. When you're looking at money to do and be what only God can be for you. That's greed. Now, it's hard to know. There's not a line, right? There's not a percentage or something like that that determines whether you're a greedy person or not. So what we really need more than a definition of greed is an indication. What are some signs that you've crossed the line and fall into this trap of greed? Well, that's what Jesus does in this next section, and I want to read. It's a fairly well-known passage of Scripture, but a really, really powerful and, uh, and clear treatment on the idea of money and greed from Jesus. And so we'll pick up where we left off in verse 22 of Luke chapter 12. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? 
Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so again, I want us to hear Jesus' words as those of loving, compassionate warning. Where he's saying, I love you. And I want what's best for you. And I want your life to be full of the knowledge of my presence. I want you to enjoy peace with me. I want you to have the best possible life. And so I have to warn you. Watch out. Pay attention. Guard yourself. Be suspicious of yourself. Be careful about this thing called greed. And what he does here is basically gives several indicators that greed has crept into our lives. I want to walk through those really quickly and see if we can start to get a a picture of what he's talking about. The first is gloating over what you have. In verse 19, in this story that, uh, that Jesus tells, And again, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And so Jesus in this parable is describing a guy who's describing to himself what he's going to say once he's finally made it. He's picturing the inner monologue that he's going to have once all of his assets are secure and he's living large and he's picturing that day where he'll be able to say to himself, I've finally made it, I'm okay, I've got more than anybody else around me and life is good. And so his inner monologue exposes that he believes his money is what makes him superior to others. When his identity is threatened, when he's not sure about who he is or where he's going in life, he tells himself, don't worry what anyone else thinks, you're rich. You've made it. Are you ever tempted to brag or to show off your money or possessions? Do you ever go out of your way to impress people with your material wealth? Do you secretly enjoy making others envious of what you have? If so, watch out for greed. Stand your guard. Number two, worrying about what you don't have. In verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life or what what you'll eat or about your body or what you will wear. 
Now, when Jesus tells us not to worry, he's obviously not saying don't think ahead and don't plan for the future. But he's saying, if you worry about money, about possessions, about wealth, and about stuff, you have set your heart on material things just as much as the overtly greedy person has. When do you worry? We don't worry when we have everything. We worry when we don't have what we want. So here's what's crazy. Jesus is saying that it's possible to be rich and not be greedy, and it's possible to be poor and to be extremely greedy. Some of us think, well, obviously he's not talking about me. I'm not greedy. I don't have anything. And Jesus is going, that's not how it works. The amount of time that we spend worrying, in the language in verse 29, worrying is to set our hearts, the deepest desire, the thing that we crave, long for, run after, the thing that we invest our time and emotional energy in. He's, he's saying that it's possible to be just as greedy and, ob- and obsessed over material things that we don't have as it is for those that do have. Right? So gloating over what you do have, worrying about what you don't have, both signs that greed may have infected your heart. This is fun, right? Number three, seeking security in money. Seeking security in money. In verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than a bird. So he's saying deep inside, most of us aren't trying to get more money just to have more money, but we believe that there's something more money will give us. There's, remember Jesus says all kinds of greed. There's all kinds of greed. Here's one of them. Looking to money for security. Deep inside, we believe oftentimes that security and control come from money. And we know the truth is that only God can give us the kind of security we need most. Having lots of money can be convenient, it can be fun, it can be comfortable. But we all know that when it comes to our lives, there's a lot of things that money can't secure us from, right? When it comes to tragedies and accidents, and broken relationships, and deaths. Money can't save you from any of that stuff, can it? We all know that the wealthiest people in the world still get diagnosed with cancer, and depression, and they get divorced, and their families fall apart, and they lose people that they love. All of that happens just as much as it does for poor people. And so we look to money hoping for security when the reality is we know deep down that it can't really protect us. And so some of us hate spending money on ourselves or anyone else. We're not big spenders, but we love the feeling of putting money away in savings because somehow that makes us feel more safe and more secure. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Be on your guard. Watch out. Number four, basing your image on money. Verse 27. 
Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And so for some of us, we look to money for security, and others, we look to money for our beauty or for our identity. When Jesus says we shouldn't store up things for herself, ourselves, he's, he's not saying don't save, don't invest, don't think about the future. He's saying don't look to money to be the thing that will cause you or be, to be the, the thing that would, that would cause you to feel like your identity finally matters. In other words, money is where many people get their sense of worth. That if I just had that thing, or if I just had that cash, then people would look at me the way that I want them to. And so these are the people that don't save a lot. These are the people that spend a lot of money on, them, on themselves. And they don't necessarily like spending on money on themselves, but they inevitably do. They're willing to spend money on the right kind of clothes or items or whatever it is. It's their way of proving their worth to the world. And so either way, you're looking to money to feel secure or to feel beautiful. You're looking for something that only God can give you. And Jesus says, be careful. Watch out. Pay attention. And finally, number five, seeing your money as your own is a sign that you've been infected with greed. And in verse 21 again, he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So again, storing it for yourself doesn't mean don't save, don't plan. He's saying, don't store up for yourself what rightly belongs to God. Don't consider your money and your stuff as your own. Now this is a challenging one. In a lot of ways, it's the foundation for everything that Jesus is teaching. Don't you understand that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? That everything you have, no matter how hard you've worked for it, truly and ultimately belongs to God, the creator and the owner and the sustainer of all things. And that in his generosity, he gives us some money, he gives us some stuff, he gives us the ability to make some money. But Jesus says, don't confuse your money as belonging to you. Ultimately, it's all his. So in the Old Testament, God commands his people to tithe on their income. And on a regular basis, they are to bring the first 10% of their income and to present it uh, before the house of God. And that money would be used to pay the priests. That money would be used to serve the poor. That money would be used to throw big parties and essentially carry on the ministry of God's people. And the language of tithe, the way God talked about it, was very interesting. He never tells people to give a tithe. He tells them to bring their tithe. There's a big difference, isn't there? That when we give to God's work, it's not that we're giving God of our money, it's that we're bringing him a portion of his money. 
And here's what's crazy. Some of us can't even imagine giving 10% of our income. But do you realize that if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, meaning everything you have belongs to him, then he's entitled to 100% of it. But in his generosity, God says, bring me 10% and the other 90% is yours. Do you ever think about it? the tithe as a mark of God's generosity? That he entrusts us the other 90%. And so here when we receive tithes and offerings, we don't give our money, we bring it to God and return to him as a reflection of his generosity. And so what's interesting here is in verse 21, and it says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but, not, but is not rich towards God. This is a radical commandment. I don't want to diminish its power and clarity. But you have to keep in mind that in Jesus' day, people didn't have banks or savings accounts or retirement funds or 401ks. People had some cash, but their real capital was in their land and homes and possessions like cattle. And so Jesus is teaching these original followers not just to give out of their cash, but to give out of their capital. And this is where things get a little bit radical for us when it comes to generosity and giving. But what if we were actually willing not just to give out of our excess, not just to to give from the margins, but what if we had such an orientation around the teaching and life of Jesus that we were motivated to creatively give out of our capital, dipping into our investments, selling our property so that we can give more to the poor, to the needy, to the church, to the mission of God, to fight poverty and injustice in in the world, to care for one another, to fund God's mission in the city and around the world. If that sounds crazy to you, then you've been infected. And greed is closer than you think. Okay, so Jesus gives us these five signs or symptoms of greed, but he doesn't leave us there, and I won't leave you there either. He doesn't just diagnose, but he brings a cure, and that cure is a radical experience of grace. Look in verse 32 and 33. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your, brother, your father has been, ple- has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does Jesus say, if you get really generous, and if you start giving of your possessions and giving to the poor, then God will let you into his kingdom? Is that what he says here? If you want to have a right standing with God, if you want to be part of God's family, then you need to be generous and give of your money. That's not what he says. He says the exact opposite, doesn't he? He says when you realize that God has already given his kingdom to you, in grace, he's already invited you into his very life and into his very family. When you realize how costly it was for God to save and redeem your soul and to bring you into himself, when you realize that God has already generously, graciously poured himself out and invited you into his kingdom, he says, then, then 
The idea of selling your possessions, of being generous, of giving to the poor isn't going to sound crazy to you at all. God doesn't love us and save us because we do good works, but we do good works because he has already loved and saved us. And what's crazy about this whole thing is that the imagery Jesus uses is that God has a treasure as well. There's a place where God's heart is. And where is that? It's us. That we are his treasure. We are where his heart is. We are the ones that he loved so deeply from before the beginning of creation and gave his son to redeem us back to himself. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says that Jesus became poor so that we who were poor might become rich. Is Paul saying that if you give our treasure away, then God will make us his treasure? No, again, it's the opposite. We have to see this. He's saying we are the heavenly treasure of God. We are the ones that he has been generous to, pursued with love and with faithfulness and with loving kindness. That every day we have, everything we have is a gift from him. And when Jesus came to earth, he literally lived among the poor. He lived in poverty. But the way he lived is also the way he died. And on the cross, he sold everything he had. He lost his glory, his power, his honor, his intimacy with the Father. He sold it all so that he could give himself to us. If you only knew, if you only knew how good and gracious and generous God is, then money would no longer be your treasure. It would just be money. But Christ himself would be your treasure, would be the thing that your heart really longs for when you see what it cost God to make us his own. Then we begin to treasure Jesus in a way that's going to change everything. And all of us already have a treasure, don't we? We already have something that occupies that place in our lives. And whatever it is, it's willing to demand your whole life to get it. But Jesus is the only treasure that died for you. And so my hope and my encouragement as we think about the spirituality of everyday life, and as we think about being people who long to be transformed in all areas of life for the sake of God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom, is that we would take seriously the command and warning of Jesus this morning. That we would be willing to pay attention, to ask hard questions, and to allow the way we see and use our money to expose the things that we're looking to for what only Christ can be for us. And for those of you that feel like you could use some help in this journey, maybe you're in a place where debt has gotten so overwhelming or you're just not even sure the basics of how to think about and manage your money. Again, like we announced, the financial peace class is designed exactly to be helpful for, for those in that situation. Jen and I went through it several years ago and it was super helpful. We were able to get a plan together to think through how can we allow money to be what God intends it to be in our lives, nothing more or nothing less, right? How can we use what we have in order for the, 
to advance his kingdom in our home, in our city, and around the world. And so, especially for those that are trying to figure out how do you do any of this stuff when you're dealing with significant debt, I can't recommend financial peace enough. So, um, so please do consider signing up for that. But as we respond this morning, the invitation is to come to the table or to come and receive prayer, to take seriously that we have heard something from God this morning in one way or another. And uh, I want to invite you, if, uh, if you want to receive communion, to come down. If you want to receive prayer, back by the exit signs, members of our prayer team will be back there for you. And if, whatever it is that's going on in your life that you want to share or receive prayer for, then they're here for you as well. Or however it is that you would choose to respond, please Pay attention and ask God to search your heart. So will you stand with me? And uh, we'll close in prayer. Our Father, uh, we look to you and you alone as the Savior of the world and the Savior of our hearts. And we celebrate that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen, and that life and life to the full has come. And so, God, none of us want to be greedy. None of us want money to occupy the wrong places in our hearts or lives. We really don't. God, we want to be yours and live deeply with you. And we long for our community to be a a display to the world of your generosity. And so, Lord Jesus, would you help us? We need your help to pay attention to watch out, to be on guard? Would your words continue to rattle in our hearts and minds this week? Would you give us the courage to ask tough questions? But ultimately, Father, would you give us, by your Spirit, a true sense of our belovedness in you, that we are treasured by you, that we are safe and secure in you? And would you help us to live out of that place with our money and with everything else as well? We long to be a generous community. And so God, wake us up to smell your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.